I really like this episode. This is awesome. We have Dr. Chris Lee on, who's an orthopedic surgeon, private practice, sports medicine specialist from California. He's got really deep Boston roots. We share a lot of the same education, uh, the Tufts orthopedic program. We both went to Tufts undergrad as well. So there's a lot of great history that we go back and forth on. But what's really cool, he's the team physician for USA Indoor Volleyball, men's and women's. So he was on the court when the women's uh, USA Volleyball team won their gold medal for the first time. And he tells that story of how you become a team doctor and being a part of the team. It's a fun story. I know you're going to like it. Hashtag follow the pro. From Medical Media, this is The Author Show. Hello world, Dr. Scott Sigmund, your favorite opioid-sparing orthopedic surgeon here for another episode of The Ortho Show podcast, where we bring you the best of the best in the orthopedic world, and we are no exception once again today. We're going West Coast with uh, Dr. Christopher Lee, who's an orthopedic surgeon, sports medicine specialist. He's in private practice in Burbank, California. He is the team physician for USA Indoor Volleyball, both for the men's and women's team. We have a lot of shared history and a lot of our medical training. Chris, it is great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for having me on. Appreciate oh, it. It's my pleasure. So so first and foremost, I mean, you're you're a Boston dude, right? Born and bred? Yeah. Born and raised in Boston. Grew up in Newton, Massachusetts. Went to Newton South High, home of the. I was going to say South or North. What's it going to be? South or South. North? Newton South. South. Okay. Right, that's, that's very cool. And then, uh, and then you uh, you really sort of stuck around and 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 went for the triple jumbo, which we'll explain to our listeners here in a minute. But I'm only a double jumbo. We don't find too many triple jumbos, but jumbo is the is the mascot for for Tufts University, and uh, you know they're part of the, the New England Small College Athletic Conference, where they have the weirdest names for teams. Right? It's like the yeah. Amherst Lord Jeffs the Williams purple cows and all kinds of weird stuff. And we were the Tufts Jumbos, which was the large elephant from P.T. Barnum, who was one of the major, you know, contributors to Tufts University. And uh, so we share a lot of that, don't we? Yeah, it, it was a great ride at Tufts. I'm still a Tufts homer. I'm a lifer. No, fantastic. And uh, we should we'll definitely talk about that. So so obviously, you know, you, you stuck around Tufts and, and did your most of your education there. But was orthopedics something that was was early on for you, or was that something no, that evolved? I had no idea orthopedics even existed as a field when I started my training. I remember my dad was a doc. He was an OBGYN. And when I was kind of late in high school, I was thinking about medicine. And I saw one of his colleagues do the surgery where this doc took a baby out of a womb, fixed the baby, and put the womb back in. And then over time, this 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 lady had like a perfect normal vaginal birth and the, and the kid was great. So that's kind of what I wanted to do. I was like, Oh, I want to be a pediatric cardiothoracic surgeon. I want to save lives. This is incredible. And then I think it was like first year of medical school. I did a rotation in that. And I saw kind of the other side of it where the surgeries weren't successful. And then I was like, Oh, I don't think I can handle this emotionally. I'm, I'm kind of an emotional person in general. And so then I was just looking for things to do. And I just wanted to do research in general because I heard people, you know, if you want to match something competitive, you got to do research. And I couldn't find a good research project. And what finally one of my friends told me at Tufts, there's a doctor, Dr. Richmond. I'm sure you know well, Dr. John Richmond, one of my mentors for life. And my friend told me, hey, this doc is growing ACLs in a test tube. I thought that sounded <laughs> kind of cool. So I just hooked on with Dr. Richmond. And then he let me come to the OR to watch his surgeries. I did clinic with him. 
And I don't know if I wanted to do orthopedics or I just wanted to be him. I was like, I just want to be Dr. Richmond because he's, yeah. he's incredible. I mean, he, 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 is, he is a great guy. Let's take it back for me. Let's go back to 1985. And I'm playing intramural football on Ellis Oval. And I twist my knee and I tear my meniscus. And my first interaction with orthopedics was with John Richmond. Oh, my God. Team doctor for Tufts at the time. And he scoped my knee. So. Yeah. You know, we, uh, he was always a, a great mentor for me as well as so many. He's now a real iconic leader in sports yeah. medicine around the world. He's yeah. no longer operating and retired, but uh, what, what a great guy. So talk, let's talk about Tufts. I mean, was Harry, I remember the name Harry Bernheim, who was like a biology professor. Oh, yeah. Was Harry still there when you were there? Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. And then also, I, I we dig in here at the Ortho Show. We want to know a little bit about you. And I'll tell you a funny story. So my freshman roommate at Tufts in 1982 was uh, a gentleman named Eric Barca and he was doing a dual uh a, a dual, doing a dual study program at both at Tufts as well as the New England Conservatory of Music oh. and he was violin so I wanted to hear where because I know that you have a rich history with violin as well yeah and where did you so did you study at Tufts through the music program there or was that also part of New England uh, Conservatory? unfortunately I was kind of burned I'm not gonna lie I was kind of burned out by college I, I went really hard in high school with violin. It's just something that, I mean, I was really fortunate. It just, I took it well. I just, I was like, kind of like, didn't really practice a lot more than my friends did. But for some reason, it I just took well to it. I was good at it. But I, I didn't develop a passion for music until probably my sophomore year of high school. Something happened in my brain where I just got really into it. I don't know why. It, it, it's just some, you know, it's kind of a little bit of a late bloomer. And I went really hard for three years like traveling everywhere, practicing like a few hours a day, like trying to balance school, music, trying to play sports too. It was just a lot. And then um, I had a little burnout kind of my senior year of high school where I got pretty disillusioned. You know, the entertainment industry is not, not always about how good you are. It's about the whole package, how you look, how you act. Do you have charisma? Can you sell, can you sell records and stuff? So that really wasn't what I'm about. I'm a little bit more kind of earthy and more di- more just want to be real. So I kind of burned out a little bit, but I still love it. I still actually pick up my fiddle once in a while and play. It, it, I still enjoy it, but not at that level anymore. So I didn't want to go to a conservatory where there's a lot of politics and competition. You really got to grind hard. Yeah. And, and to master the violin just requires tremendous energy and time, right? It's just not I, one of those things. Even if it does come easy to you and you've got the right side of the brain to do it, still the, the amount of time that's required to practice and, and become outstanding. But it is pretty cool to be able to pick up a violin whenever you want now and just sort of, you know, hit it out a little bit and have some fun. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure yeah. the people around you love it. Oh, well, I don't know about that. It, you know, classical music is just so small. So not like, yeah, you really got it. It's like a one percenter thing, a two percenter thing. Sure. So if I pick it up and I haven't played for a while, it sounds kind of scratchy and people can't, they can't hear like the, the hands and stuff. Yeah. Well, no, that's, but that's really pretty amazing though, that, uh, that's, that was part of your life, you know, for sure. So, but, so obviously, you know, that it's medical school, you get through Tufts undergrad, you know, and uh, which was a great place to study for pre-med. I mean, you just, yeah. just, uh, just amazing professors and, and students alike who are really pushing you hard to be able to be accomplished and do well. You get into Tufts medical school, which is awesome. Uh, and then you're trying to figure out the whole thing and you're getting an MBA at the same time. Did you wind up getting the MBA while yeah. you're still in medical school? Tufts had a dual degree program. So it was hard, especially my first couple summers because I was trying to do research in the summer. 
but I also just had to take four business classes um, during the summer. So it was pretty tough. I would go to business school in the mornings and then go to Dr. Richmond's lab at Tufts Health and Sciences at night, basically, and just run tests overnight doing his ACL project. So it's pretty, it was a hard grind. And then during medical school, you have to take a couple classes a semester for business, but it was kind of nice for me. It was, it was refreshing because, you know, the pre-med and then medical school, you're in the science mode. It gets pretty monotonous. So having something totally different because we weren't really in health sciences classes, health business administration, we're in like straight up business class. So it was really, really neat to see how other people think. It really developed a different culture in my head, how I wanted to run things. It's definitely helped me in private practice. Yeah, well, that was my next question because we've got a lot of MD MBAers, you know, on the ortho show that have come through, and especially for the ones that wind up getting their degree early on, um, you know, it's 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 been helpful, but it's not necessarily something that you actually use in in clinical practice. I mean, you're you're a clinical practicing orthopedic surgeon. Right. You're not doing a lot of healthcare administration, other weird stuff, right? You're focused on your patients. Is that pretty much right? Pretty much. I mean, in private practice, we kind of have one hat being the clinic, clinical practitioner. The other hat is running the, it's a small business. Sure. But sure. I always tell when, when, when individuals I mentor ask me, what's the number one thing I gained from the MBA? And I think it's the culture of how can we improve our flow? Because it's all about time, right? When we're docs and we're seeing 50, 70, whoever, 100 patients in a day, whatever volume that you're doing, you need to maximize your time with that patient so you can build a relationship. And if I can make my flow from the patient walking in the waiting room to when they're in the room, who takes their history, what's our flow getting the screening x-rays, if I can improve my flow one minute per patient, if I've seen 50 or 60 patients a day, I've saved an hour over the day. And if I divvy up that hour, you know, that's, that's a 12% increase in how much time I'm spending with my patient. So it's all about just how can I increase the amount of time I have per patient? If I can cut out, you know, a few seconds here, there where it really doesn't matter, then I can add it to where it does matter. And that's that patient encounter. So I think just that, that mentality. Now, certainly you can develop that without going to business school, but for me, yeah. it helped me a lot. I mean, we always say it all the time in my office, you know, our, our patient's time is just as valuable as ours. So my entire team is focused on getting that 250 patient into a room at 250. Yeah. Because, you know, if they're in a room at 250 for their time and I wind up spending 10 quality minutes with them, they're super happy. If, if they've been in the waiting room for two hours and then you spend five minutes with them, usually they're getting pretty pissed off at you. So yeah. efficiency in practice is a great thing, Chris, and, and I'm glad you recognize that, for, you know, for sure. So so it looked like, you know, all right, so you're you're working with JR. So so it's like the third jumbo thing is really looking pretty promising within the orthopedic residency, right? You're, you're through, you're through college, you're in medical school, you're doing research with J.R. Richmond. Uh, It's pretty good chance you're going to get into the orthopedic residency. Now I I wonder the timeline because it's, you know, I did the Tufts residency as well. So J.R. was one of my, you know, tremendous mentors. Michael Goldberg was the chairman at the time. Was Chuck Cassidy the chairman when you were there at the program? So Chuck took over basically my first year of residency. So it was tough. That was that was kind of like the dark times of Tufts Medical Center. You know, JR had already gone to the Baptist at that point. Dr. Weitzel, Paul Weitzel went with him. So when we started my second year of residency as ortho intern, it was my class, my residency class. We had Chris Geary, who was one attending. And then we had two part-time attendings. That was it. And then we had Chuck. So we had basically three attendings and then Stu Braun, the the amazing PD orthopod over there, he joined 
it was his first year of practice. It was tough. Uh, in the but you guys were weren't you? You would still go to the Baptist. You would still go to Newton Wellesley. Yep. So you still get interaction with those guys. It was it was an incredible learning experience. And I mean, Dr. Cassidy was just phenomenal. Just putting things together, finding attendings for us to work with, never compromising the training, even though the department was going through a transitional period. Um, I look back. I don't. I definitely didn't appreciate it when I was going through it. There's no doubt about it. A little bit of a black sheep. Um, uh, when we were going through it, we we're like, oh man, like we thought this, this residency was great. JR left and blah, 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 blah. But now looking back, it might've just have been the perfect situation for me to kind of mature as an individual. And when you're work, we were, that was before 80 hour rule. We were working a lot. And that maturation process prior from year two, three, four in residency was huge for me. Yeah. I mean, the Tufts program has, has really made great orthopedic surgeons from a technical standpoint forever. I mean, it's just, it's a very hands-on program. You're involved in the surgical intervention really from day one. You know, obviously they allow you to advance as your technique advances so you can do more things. But, uh, and then like we talked about, you know, you have the New England Baptist Hospital where JR was still there and then the amazing joint replacement and spine surgery that was going on there. Newton Wellesley, a private practice environment where you got to work with some great individuals there as well. Uh, and that hands-on training really makes really wonderful orthopedic surgeons. So we, you know, we take a Tufts, we'll take a Tufts resident all day long in our, in our private practice as we're, as we're expanding. Those are the ones we're looking for. And Chuck is, you know, dear friend, Chuck was one year ahead of me in residency. So, you know, it's been such an honor and privilege to watch him really take that, that program and redevelop it again. And now, you know, really just doing an amazing job. And we've cranked out, Amazing chairman. I mean, Bill Levine, you know, Ben Altman. I mean, you just, you know, down the line, we've got some amazing chairman across the country from that program as well. So, so obviously, so, so that's great. So you mean you recognize this thing and you're going through your residency and, and it seems like sports is the thing that you want to do. Now you're an East coast guy. And so it's similar for, for me as well. I mean, I was a completely East coast guy my entire life. And I said, well, you know, if I'm going to do a fellowship, I want to go to the West Coast and I want to learn how to, they're doing it out there. So I went to Curl and Joe, but you go out to San Diego and do the sports medicine fellowship in San Diego. So how was that? How was that for you for a year? I'm not going to lie. Even though my wife wasn't with me for that year, it might have been one of the best years of my life. Just an incredible, well, number one is San Diego. Just I hadn't, I hadn't really never been to San Diego in my life before my fellowship. And I showed up and I was kind of like, whoa this exists in America. It was incredible just being there. I mean, just driving down the street is a totally different vibe from being in Boston for the first 30 years of my life. It was incredible. And then just the training was phenomenal. It was, it was so similar to Tufts where the attendings weren't just interested in training your skills. They, they want to train your character. They just want you to be a good person, a good doctor. I think a lot of times in training, we get so into, oh, I want to learn how to do this. I want to do research. I want to pump my numbers. I need a big CV. And you kind of forget that you you don't just want to be an orthopedic surgeon. You want to be a doctor. And just all the mentors that I had in fellowship were so in line with, with the culture of Tufts. It was such a great transition for me and, and just huge development for me as a person. And then just the the training and the skill level. I mean, Jim Esch, Heinz Henneke, Jan Franek, just these master arthroscopists and open shoulder surgeons. It was incredible. It was just mind blown. Every, everything I was seeing, I was just mind blown. Yeah. Mentor is one of our favorite words on the ortho show. We hear it almost every episode where people have learned and then they try to pass it on as well. And, uh, all right. You know, so, you, so you have this amazing fellowship, you're out in San Diego and you're like, okay, 
you know, and you decide to stay. And first, who nobody stays. You're from Boston. Nobody stays in California. They just go for like yeah. a year and then they come back. I mean, what were you thinking? So you're looking for private practice and you wind up in private practice with Dr. Stetson in Burbank, California. And I mean, that's not easy. I mean, the number of sports medicine doctors in Los Angeles, you trip over them left and right. Amazing doctors. So what was your thought process? Right. Why did you decide to stay in California? I'm not going to lie. I called everybody. I want to go back to Boston. I'm a Boston homer. I miss it. I, I Sometimes I think I go back in a heartbeat at seven. Now I'm used to the weather out here in California. I can't. But I literally couldn't get a job in Boston. It was so tight when I was graduating. It was a really, really tough time in medicine in general. Uh, reimbursements were going di- down. I called everybody. Just couldn't get a job. And then so, you know, I trained in the West Coast. I had a ton of West Coast connections. Dr. Stetson knew my my mentors in fellowship. And we just made a connection. Uh, I don't think Dr. Stetson wanted to hire a new grad, but we had dinner and we met at San Diego Shoulder and we just hit it off. And what I loved about him, just transparency, one of the most honest individuals I've ever met. Uh, Same thing, just it's all across the board, just a great character. And just we just kind of hit it off and I joined him and I was really lucky because he was super busy. I got a lot of overflow. I came in early, stayed late, just kind of over the years, built a little private practice out And here. I'm assuming your wife did come out once you decided to go into private practice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, after a year. It was kind of like a, let's see how it goes. Are we really going to be in California? Neither of us ever thought we'd ever live in California. We are not West Coast mentality yeah. individuals. Um, certainly we are now. I mean, been here for Do, do years you live now. close enough to the office that you can actually get there? Now I do. <laughs> for eight years, I because I never thought I was going to stay in yeah. Burbank. California. So I got, I rented an apartment in like Santa Monica by the beach. It was great. But the commute was like 45 minutes to work an hour home every day. And finally, maybe about three years ago, we finally decided to move closer to work for me. Yeah. My boy, some of my favorite people on the planet are from Santa Monica, you know, Ramin Modaber, Michael Gerhardt, all the guys that you know, well, from, from your time in LA for sure. So, you know, I want to talk about uh, your experience. I mean, this has been a pretty special time for you in your professional practice with the Olympics uh, as the as the team position for for USA indoor volleyball. It, it's not an easy thing to become a team physician at it for a national team, much less, you know, be able to participate in the Olympics as well. It's typically an arduous journey. I'd love to hear the story about how you got there and how you became the, the lead physician for both men's and women's indoor volleyball. Well, it, it was a long road. I'm really lucky. My partner, Dr. Stetson, he was already the head orthopedic doctor for USA Volleyball when I started my practice about 11 years ago. And really early on, he hooked me on with with covering some small tournaments. So, you know, covered a tournament in Canada, you go to Poland, and just every year we will usually spend about two to four weeks traveling internationally with the teams, just covering. And over time, you know, the 2012 Olympics, he, my Dr. Stetson covered the 2012 Olympics, 2016 came on. I didn't get selected for those Olympics, but you just, you just keep showing up. You're always, Jim Esch always told me, always be there. Life will come. You just keep showing up and you do the best job you can. And being a team doc, you know, for volleyball, it's not it's not like NFL where there are injuries happening left and right. You know, volleyball is a relatively space, safe sport. It's more more chronic nagging injuries rather than you know tear your ACL on the on the court. So I just basically do what I can. You know, get water bottles, get towels, help make Gatorade before you're going to go onto the court. Stuff that you know 
you don't really learn in, in residency. It's just you learn from your mentors. Your mentors tell you, hey, when you cover a team, you do what you can. You're basically the assistant to the athletic trainer. You do whatever you can to help out. And then just don't get in the way. And I just kept grinding, kept grinding. And over time, you know, you get the opportunity to take care of some of the athletes. You treat the athletes respectfully. And I think just over time, just build relationships. Um, it, it takes a lot of time to build relationships with coaches, for sure. Uh, coaches are only going to bring doctors that they trust. And I, I had a lot of backing. Um, I had a lot of individuals vouching for me, Dr. Stetson, the athletic trainers, to over time, I think, sh- convince the coaches, hey, Lee, Lee's a good doc. He knows what he's doing. And I think just over time paying your dues, I was really, really privileged to be asked. And when I was asked, it was three years ago. It was before COVID and everything. And that, and then all that stuff happened. Yeah, no. And it's funny. You brought up a really you know, a great point about volleyball. So it's really much more of a team approach from the physician standpoint, right? You've got your athletic trainer, you've got physical, physical therapists, a chiropractor, all these people. Because again, it's, it's really overuse you know, type injuries rather than these you know, traumatic surgical interventions. You probably don't operate on a, on a team player for volleyball very often. Uh, so, so that whole team approach is really what sort of gets you to the point of being able to be a leader and being a part. So, so, I mean, let's, let's talk about Tokyo. I mean, it was, so here, here you are, you're the team doctor three years in advance of the Olympics, it's been announced. And then obviously the Olympics get postponed, right? So you're working up to this amazing event and then all of a sudden you get the, the, the news that it's postponed, frustrations grow, whatever, but then they put the Olympics back on and, you know, you're going to Tokyo and the Japanese aren't really thrilled about vaccines. And so there was a lot of concern about the spread and the communal people coming together about, about you know, what was going to happen. So walk us through that, because it must have been very unique. I mean, this was your first Olympics, I'm assuming, but still a very unique experience for the athletes and the team members. Absolutely. For the athletes and the coaches, there's no question they're going. This is the pinnacle of their careers. For me, as a peripheral doctor, I'm not going to lie. I had a lot of mixed emotions going because I got a young family. I got a daughter that's high risk. I got a practice to take care of that. I'm going to be, I was going to be gone for four weeks and the situation in Japan, they were starting their surge in COVID with at the time a 2% vaccination rate. So I was really, really questioning like, is this right? Should we be having the Olympics? That debate. And the, the other side was, you know, if I don't go, I might never get another chance to go. I want to do this. Sure, and it, sure. It came close to making the Olympics as an athlete. I want to go. So I was very conflicted. But as the time came closer and I had a couple of meetings at the training center in Anaheim for USA Volleyballs, then your adrenaline, your excitement kind of takes over. And it was just like, I can't wait. This is going to be awesome. It's going to be the experience of a lifetime. And again, may never get this opportunity again. And the amount of preparation, I mean, our athletic trainers, God bless them. I mean, the paperwork, there was so much red tape they had to work through. I was really lucky. Our athletic trainers for USA Volleyball volleyball were incredible. They did all the grunt work. I kind of just showed up and went along with the team. I was just along for the ride. I was very lucky. And then, and then once you get there, was the, was the experience okay? I mean, I know that people were worried there weren't going to be a lot of fans, things were going to be spread out, and you're yeah. wearing masks or not wearing masks. Did it seem okay once you got there? Uh, it, it was a little dicey. Uh, the men's team decided to go about two weeks early to weather and temperature, sorry, temperature and time acclimate. So they went two weeks early. That first two weeks was great because we were at a training center about three hours away from Tokyo. We had a hotel, single rooms. Our training center was right next to the hotel. It was a dream. It was great. The food was awesome. 
And then two weeks passed when we went to the Olympic Village. I remember the bus ride into the village, even getting our accreditation tags. We were a little bit like, "Uh oh, this might not be so good because we were packed like sardines. There's really very little crowd control. I would say going through the village in the very beginning, first couple of days, like not a lot of people were wearing masks. And then the IOC came in and said, hey, we got to be compliant. This is the real deal. And then for the first week, there was a lot of kinks that had to be ironed out. There was, we had a coach go into quarantine. We had a beach volleyball player show up and got positive in the village. It was, it was tough. There were a lot of cases. It was extremely stressful for medical our athletic trainers, myself, we were just, we were constantly seeing how can we get our athletes out of quarantine? Can we get our coach out of quarantine? How would we prevent this? Um, in the very beginning, there was a short supply of test kits. So we were, we had to test every day and they hadn't ordered enough kits. Mm. Are we supposed to test or not? Are we going to get banned from the Olympics? Cause we missed a couple test days. There was so much anxiety for COVID and then every day during the Olympics at 5 p.m. when your test results come back, especially me being peripheral staff, I'm not an athlete, I'm not a coach. It's like if I'm the one that gets COVID and now my whole team is in quarantine for two weeks, I could be the reason we don't get a gold medal. That it was always in the back of our minds. Hmm. So as staff, you just didn't be, want to be the one to cause everybody to fail in our journey, in our mission. So it, So mentally, it was exhausting just from that. So when we heard there were athletes having mental health issues and they had the US, USOC had two mental health professionals on staff who were seeing 40 cases a day during the Olympics, it was, that's 80 mental health encounters per day for just Team USA. I mean, if you think about how stressful the Olympics are just from the physical ability to perform and do what you need to do, having trained for four years to come in to do this thing yeah. and then have that mental exposure as well. It really sounds like everybody was really, really stressed out. It was stressful. I mean, they had constructed 15 foot walls around the village. And then there was only one entrance in and out of the village. We couldn't leave. We were 100% in the bubble. Mm. Well, that's, uh, that's, that's absolutely crazy. So, so, I mean, then it starts and the actual, I think it's always probably more of a relief when you actually get, get out there on the court and, yeah. and start performing and, and do what they've been training to do. And, you know, unfortunately the men's team, this wasn't their Olympics. They just missed the, the, the medal round, but I'm, you know, I know that you were there in support. Uh, but the women uh, really started to rally. It was very impressive. And, you know, I know that you talk about coaches. You have, you have Coach Karch uh, Karali, who is one of the most iconic leaders of volleyball, you know, in the history of USA Volleyball, who's an Olympic champion himself, who was the yeah. head coach for the women. And what was it like working with him? It was great. Got to live with him for two weeks in the village. It was pretty, an, pretty incredible experience. You know, I never played very high-level sports, high school sports, like, club volleyball in college. And so just being with someone so elite and seeing how he operates and how he, like you said with us for sports medicine, it's a team approach for his coaching staff. He's not like a, Hey, this is how we run things. I'm the boss. You guys all listen to me. When he asks questions to his staff, it's always, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? And then he gives his opinion. And I think just, delegating responsibilities and being very open-minded and empowering his team, just like we do in the OR, you know, it's not that whole captain of the ship mentality, I think has really gone by the wayside. Now we realize, okay, anesthesia, you're the chief of anesthesia. I'm not going to tell you what to do. 
I'm not going to tell you how to innovate this patient or whatever, you know, you're, you're scrubbed up. I'm not going to tell him how to set up or her how to set up. He does the same exact thing. And you just see across the board, if you have like an elite team, then whoever's at the top is always an, a master delegator. And certainly the final decision is always Karch's, but he really just takes everybody's input, including medical. It's, it's just incredible. Um, he's always two, heps, two steps ahead of everybody else. That's for sure. He's a genius. He's two, hep, two, two steps ahead of everybody. Uh, but I think what I really learned from him was how he manages his team, which is just incredible. Well, well, clearly his his message resonated with this team in particular, right? I mean, it was uh, really an impressive showing. I, I think that, if I'm not mistaken, I looked at the stats. I think you did. They you guys did lose to the Russians, like in the third match, which obviously was a concern. But mm-hmm. you really didn't look back from there. And uh, was it just amazing being on the floor with these with these women and just watching and and seeing this thing and thinking it really may happen? I've known a lot of the coaches and athletes for 10 years, over 10 years. Uh, and I've seen the highs and the lows, just like seeing, you know, when the men lost, I saw those lows, you know, with sports, the highs are as high as can be when the women won gold. That, that's, those are feelings that I haven't had for years. And as high as the highs can get, the lows get really, really low. Like being in the men's locker room when they lost was pretty much the pits. So I've seen, I've seen that women's team go through ups and downs too. And to be there when they accomplished their goal, for the first time ever, it was unreal. But it's also in the meetings, like seeing the scouting. I mean, the the assistant coaches, the way they scouted these teams. Sometimes I'm, I'm watching the the matches and everything they scouted was happening. It's like watching the Patriots. It's like Bill Belichick will just, he already knows what the other team's going to do. Our, our coaches already knew what the other teams were going to do. So much of volleyball is now analytics. It's a lot less read and react. It's more these are the tendencies like baseball and football. It's all okay. When out of system, when this individual is being set, they're going to hit line. And so the blocking is all set. And when we played Serbia, they had Boscovich, their amazing uh, opposite, opposite hitter. They had her scouted so well. She was, you could see on the floor, Boscovich was like, what is happening? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not scoring. And it's because all the blocking and the defensive setups were there. They, they knew exactly what she was going to do. It was incredible. Yeah, it's and it's such a you know I've been there for for UMass Lowell where we've had some championship teams for hockey and you know as a team position you you just you're you're the shadows just off to yeah. the side you know and I I saw you high fiving the team on the on the YouTube video right afterwards as you were in line and and then I saw the picture you know with you to the side as well just being so you know it's just it's amazing to be a part of it but yet you know you recognize what your role is in that in that process as well and. You know, I know that, you know, if you win the Super Bowl, you get a ring. I got a ring for my Hockey East Championship. Do, they, do, you, do you get a gold medal if you're on the team? What do you got? We get a replica. We get a replica hey, gold medal. that's I'll awesome. Any day. I'll take it any day. <laughs> that's fantastic. Good. I'm really happy because I didn't know the answer to that. So I really, I'm really happy to hear that for you. That's awesome. I'll get a replica and I'll take it. Yeah, no, that's great. So, you know, this is great, Chris. I mean, this is the type of stuff that we do in the Ortho Show. We bring in really cool people that have these really remarkable stories. You're the first on the Ortho Show to tell us about the process of becoming an Olympic team uh, physician and uh, to win a gold medal. And, you know, we're really proud of all the hard work that you've put in. I'm super proud of you as a triple jumbo, you know, for sure. You know, go jumbos, baby. Absolutely. So, it's really a pleasure to have you on the show. We can't thank you enough. I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. This is Dr. Scott Sigmund, hashtag follow the fro, host of the Ortho Show. Till next time.